Well, we want to go ahead and get started. We're blessed to have Paul Washer with us and thankful for our long friendship and partnership in ministry. We've entitled uh, this session, Brave Reforms in Evangelical Missions. Our greater theme, of course, is unashamed. And if there's anybody who's been unashamed uh, uh, by way of voicing uh, the need for a reform in evangelical missions, it's been our friend Paul Washer. So, Paul, thanks for being with us. Uh, it's just my job to tee you up and ask a few questions. So I'm going to get out of the way and let you share with the men what's on your heart. But I do want to ask you to begin by just from your perspective, looking at the landscape of evangelical missions, speak to uh, the issue of what are the major non-biblical influences in evangelical missions today that are of concern to you? How about now? Is that good? The button's green. Two, one, two. Hello? We've got options. Check, check. Okay. All right. One of the, can you hear me now? One of the advantages to being a missionary in the jungle is you don't have to worry about all these kinds of things. Um, so what was your question? Yeah, we'll start over again. You know, kind of a, a, a bird's eye view, a high-level view. Right. What do you see as some of the concerning influences in evangelical missions today? Well, um, I would start off with this. When we talk about any aspect of Christianity and we're looking at um, you know, what is the problem with missions? What is the problem with family? What is the problem with our ecclesiology? Those are all symptoms of a greater problem. And the greater problem is the lack of Scripture. That um, what we have to understand is that the Great Commission is a theological endeavor. I want you to realize that. It is a theological endeavor. I've got a few notes here I want, because these questions are so important. I wanted to make sure that I didn't miss anything. First of all, I just want you to listen. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them. It's a theological endeavor. Then look at this, Acts 6-7. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly. That is always the case. That's from Acts 6-7. And I would encourage every one of you to look at that every day. Because disciples, the work of missions, the kingdom, all of it, increase as the word of God increases. The more we preach biblically, the more the kingdom of heaven, the more the Great Commission is going to advance. Now here's one of the major problems that we have today. And that is... Um, when I go to a website about a, some mission group or mission agency, the first thing that I want to see is where did they place their confession of faith? Do they even have one? Because some don't even have a confession of faith. What is their doctrine? That's the first question that we need to ask. But here's the problem. Uh, a lot of mission agencies today, what they do is they reduce their doctrinal statement down to the lowest common denominator so that they supposedly can send out the most missionaries and receive the most donations. 
But so you've got people on the field who are supposed to work together who believe all sorts of things, and especially in soteriology. I came across a group last year, and, and part of the group believed that, um, that you could lose your salvation, and the other affirmed the biblical view. How are they supposed to work together? You see, to reduce, it's a theological endeavor. So to reduce your theology in order to accomplish a theological endeavor is self-destructive. That's one of the big problems. Another thing, and this is tremendous, if, if academia, theological academia, if, if it has a problem, it's liberalism. Um, but that liberalism in missions breeds over in the form of pragmatism. And what you need to understand, that even if you're Calvinistic, or even if, if your doctrine of soteriology is, is biblical and your view of church is somewhat biblical and we just go on biblical, biblical, biblical in textbook but not in practice, you're a liberal. Pragmatism is one of the greatest enemies to missions today. Does it work? That's never the question. Ask that question to Jeremiah. That's never the question. The question is, is it biblical? And so we have to... Not only in our churches in America, in our theology, we, we have to realize something, that the Reformation was not about Calvinism. The Reformation was about sola scriptura, and Calvinism came out of sola scriptura. So you can be a, a Calvinist with skinny jeans on all day long, but that doesn't mean you're a son of the Reformation. The question is, are you looking at every aspect of Christian doctrine and life and seeking to submit your doctrine and life to the standard of Scripture. Another thing that uh, is really hurting us, we send people out to be missionaries because they want to be missionaries. And I'm like, you know, some of you are too young to remember this, but Jethro Bodine wanted to be a brain surgeon. <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is, we should treat missionaries because I believe that missionaries who are sent out to proclaim must be elder qualified. So you treat it the same way as you treat an elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3. A man must aspire to be a missionary, but then he must qualify to be a missionary and be affirmed by biblical men, biblical congregation. So we're sending out so many people that are... And let me say this. Many of those people that are going out are zealous for Christ, they would die for Christ, and they're not the problem. Their elders are the problem. Their elders should have never allowed them to be sent to the field, but demand that they be elder qualified first. Another thing is syncretism. It's everywhere. And, and it's in, there are places in the world where there are mission groups that if you went on their website, it would look very, very conservative. And yet, in practice... They're denying the exclusivity of Christ. They're denying that Yahweh is different from Allah. They're denying so many things. And what you have to see is this. Our message is scandalous. And if you can't handle the scandal, then you need to do something else. Our message is scandalous. And so many people today are trying to repackage Christianity on the mission field so that it's not scandalous, or they're using a gradual approach to teaching Christ. We'll start you off here, 
get you to accept that, and then gradually move you into the scandal. That's never the way Jesus taught. Never. Another thing uh, that has hurt uh, churches, believe it or not, um, what's going on here with regard to social justice in America has, I know churches in uh, outside of the United States that have been divided now over that issue. And it has led a lot of young men to get away from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and standing behind a different gospel. So those, those are some of the bigger problems. You've been a real advocate for reform in the area of Bible translation. You just alluded to uh, right. some of the problems. Speak to those problems, your concerns, but also what you think the solutions are. What do we need to do? Well, first of all, we need to take a lot of the translations that are out there and throw them in a trash can. That's one of the first things we need to do. Um, one of the most encouraging, in some ways, and discouraging things that you'll encounter on the mission field is translation projects. And it really depends on the translator and his view of the fear of the Lord and Scripture. And I just want to say a few things about that. First of all, translation is not merely an academic or anthropological endeavor. It is a spiritual endeavor. It is an endeavor that has to do with truth. And therefore, the translators must be spiritual men. I know it seems harsh that I'm demanding this, but they must be converted. And they must be spiritual. And they must walk in the fear of God. When I look at some of the history of translation, and I look especially even at the transmission of Scripture, like, for example, scribes making copies, Jewish scribes making copies, the fear with which they handled God's Word seems to be forgotten today among so many people. So we need to realize that it's not merely academic, it is spiritual. An unbeliever or an immature believer cannot translate. Another thing that you've got to realize with regard to translation, being a theological endeavor, that translator must be a theologian. Because if he's not, he cannot, for example, he cannot communicate propitiation if he doesn't understand it. It's more than a word. It's a word that describes a doctrine. And if you don't understand the doctrine, you're in trouble. So there was a tribal situation in Peru uh, a year ago. There was this one tribe in which we wanted to get Bibles there. And uh, the translation had just come out. And so I got a hold of the translators, very nice people. And I said, look, we want to purchase a lot of these Bibles and get them into this tribal situation. Oh, that's wonderful. I said, but before we do... I said, will you please back-translate for me, either in Spanish or English, back-translate Romans 3, 25 and 26? He did. It was unrecognizable. You couldn't have pulled the doctrine of propitiation out of there. So that, that's a problem. Another thing that you must understand, it's a beautiful phrase, but it's wrong. The Bible is not the missionary. That has hurt Bible translation more than just about anything. Why? Because what you do is you go, okay, I'm going to translate a Bible in such a way, I'm going to paraphrase it 
in such a way that it could be understood by an unconverted and uninstructed person. But that's contrary to Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. What do we have there? God gave us, gave to the church. Christ gave to the church. We have evangelists, pastors, and teachers. This is very, very important. And it changes everything you think about translation. If, if I look at some, the, the, um, the ability of a certain people to understand language or to read language, and I say, okay, based on that, I'm going to translate the Bible. That, that's, that's, that's wrong. You don't mess with the Bible. You don't change the Bible. You don't dumb down the Bible. So that's very, very important. People need a Bible that can be expounded, that can be preached. So if you have a paraphrased version of Scripture, you're never going to have powerful preachers in that culture. Now, let me say this. When you first begin translating, and people, they do not even have a written language, yes, you must make concessions. You must bring them along in a way like children. And that's another thing that's a very important point about translating. You cannot do translation outside the context of the church. And with translating, there must be evangelists, pastors, and teachers who are training and teaching and expounding the Scriptures. That's very, very, very important. And so I'm really encouraged by stuff that, that's going on here with regard to translation. I'm really encouraged by some young men who, because their theology has been transformed, their view of translation has been transformed. What we need to understand is they need a Bible in their hands that gets them as close as possible to the original language so that they can understand the mind of God. Not only that, communicate the mind of God. You know, uh, I think Dr. MacArthur asked me years ago, he said, you know, back when I guess I looked younger, maybe, he said, all the young guys, you know, have gone to ESV and you're still New American Standard. And I like the ESV, it's, it's, it's fine. But he said, why? And I go, prepositions and participles, prepositions and participles. It's so much easier to diagram. It's so much easier to know the mind of the author. And, and that's the Bible that we have to give a people. And in order to do that, you just can't send a translator. You have to have a translator, an evangelist, a teacher, a pastor, and you bring them along with the translation. So you don't just send a translator. You send a team of men. Excellent. Well, let's talk about a few of the other front lines where the battle uh, needs to be waged. Let's talk about what's happening in their pastoral training. Um, concerns, observations, and what do we need to do? Yeah, this is one of the reasons. Um, and, and first of all, let me say this. Any form of flattery is sin. And I'm, if you've heard me preach, I'm really not known for flattery. Uh, so when I tell you this, this is why I so uh, love a lot of the things that are be, being done by TMAI. 
uh, on the field. And I've, I've been to um, and I've worked with many of the men. So I remember the first time I, I, was, I was asked to preach at Masters, the university, and then someone said, do you want to go to chapel? I thought, oh, wow, maybe I'll catch a glimpse of John MacArthur or something. You know, yeah, sure, I'll go. And uh, somebody in evangelicalism had said something really bad. John MacArthur wasn't scheduled to be in chapel, but he came anyways to tell the students something. He said, men... You're here for these reasons. And I can't quote him verbatim, but it was basically you're here to study the word in order to preach the word. Study the word in order to preach the word. You want to create a missionary? Get a, get a young man to study the word so that he might live the word, so that he might preach the word, just like Ezra. That's what you need. Now, I want, I want to say something. First of all, we must understand something. Biblical missions is one biblical church with biblical elders training up elder qualified men who go out and plant another biblical church. Like a friend of mine says, it's not rocket surgery. (laughs) That's what it is. And very few people do it. And you know why very few people do it? Very few people do it because it's hard. You can prance around and get a million people to raise their hand, but plant one biblical church, you're going to fight, have to fight hell with a water pistol. It's going to be hard. And that's what people need to understand. So when I look at a mission work, I'm not looking at how many hands got raised or how many, even people, how many people got baptized. Are there biblical churches being planted? And biblical churches are not a Bible study led by the only guy who can read. You say, well, are you despising that? No. But this is what you need to understand. When a group of people like that gather, there is a sense in which you can call that a gathering, a calling out, a church. But when my baby was born and was just a few minutes old, it was a human being. Am I going to leave that baby that way? No, if I do, it would be an atrocity. In the same way, we're not talking about, you know, I hear these mission organizations, you know, we planted a thousand churches this month. I go, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. So it's, it's planting churches. And that's why you train men to do what? Let me put it this way. How do you plant a church? The same way you, or how do you plant a church? The same way you pastor one. You do the work of an evangelist, you disciple people, you exposit scripture, and you counsel. One of the things that really, really, really gets under my skin is that many people who work in the realm of missions, they act as though there was some esoteric knowledge that only they possess in order to move on the mission field. And if some Bible-thumping pastor comes, they immediately look down on him as someone not equipped. If there's any esoteric knowledge out there about missions, it's been invented by people who don't know how to preach and pray. 
Because I want you to know, men, the leaders of world missions, the epicenter of world missions is the local church. And the leader of world missions are elders. Elders who are training men. Elders who are determining when those men are qualified, along with the congregation, to go out and plant another church of like faith. So what we need to realize is missions is one local church sending out men to plant another local church. And, and let me give you an example. Uh, at, the, um, at the church in León, España, in, in Spain, uh, it's got TMAI school and everything. They're training men to do what? Preach the gospel and teach believers so that they grow in sanctification. What else? What else is there? And those men are going out and planting churches. And so that's what missions is about. But you'd be surprised how small the percentage is of men that are actually doing that on the mission field. You talked about the influence of liberalism leading to pragmatism in the area of seminary education. I just want to ask you maybe to further comment on that. What do you see seminaries overseas doing with these national guys? What are they emphasizing apart from training them to preach? You mean the TMAI guys? No, the other, there are seminaries overseas training. Yeah. What are they doing? Some of them, not doing this. well, some, a friend of mine once said, if you start some sort of seminary or institution, you need to have a clause in your bylaws that in 75 years you blow it to pieces. Um, and there's, there's so much rampant liberalism. And, and don't just think that I'm talking about Europe. There's rampant liberalism in, in Africa. There's rampant liberalism in Indonesia. In India, it's, it's, it's everywhere. But when you're th- through throwing stones, realize that all of us, liberalism is just departure from Scripture. And all of us need to fight that battle daily, daily, hourly. Look, when it, I was uh, my... my uh, co-workers over there, some of Jeff Schauber, I saw him, he just left. We were talking the other day about educational training of men. And, and Jeff said something like, I'm, I'm seeing where they're getting these guys reading 75 books, 85 books. My question is, are they reading the books of the Bible? When, when I was a, a, a young man, a, a Peruvian pastor came to me. He had been converted out of Catholicism. He was brilliant. So he went to Germany because he thought that's where the Reformation started. And he fell in a liberal, liberal school. So he came back and he said, and he was brilliant. He said, I'm going to start a seminary. He said, would you help me? And I said, well, what is the syllabus? This was the syllabus. The first semester, you read through the entire Bible and wrote a summary of every chapter. The second semester, you read through the law and did the same thing in a more in-depth way. And then the next semester, and the whole thing, if you wanted to study the Trinity, you started in Revelation and ended up in the, in the book, or you started in Genesis and ended up in Revelation. You took every verse about the Trinity out and you put it together. You studied the Bible and you memorized and memorized and memorized. On the mission field, 
we need seminaries. They're going to teach young men how to exegete the scriptures. If a young man comes to me out of seminary and says, you know, or he says, I'm going to seminary to, you know, to be prepared. And I go, seminary doesn't prepare you. Well, what does it do? Seminary should give you the tools so that you can spend your life preparing. And so, you know, the missionary needs to be our best theologian. He really does. Our missionary needs to be our best exegete. He really does. A missionary needs to be a church historian. He really does. And one of the things, again, that I appreciate about about masters, I appreciate about a lot of the TMA A schools that I've been to, TMAI schools that I've been to, is that it's just word, 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 word. I once looked at one of the curriculums, and after I got finished, I said, well, this has really helped me in my eschatology. And the leader of the school said, why? I said, well, they study here three years, right? Yeah, well, I've just discovered the three years of tribulation is when you study here at this school. (laughs) But it was just word, 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 word. Brothers, it's the word. We're pressing just a little bit further on this. You talked about pragmatism, stemming out of liberalism. But what really are some of the theological uh, underpinnings, uh, the, the problems theologically with pragmatism? Well, when did it ever go well for anyone when they did what was right in their own eyes? I know very, very sincere people who really want to do a lot in the kingdom for people and for God. But they've never been taught. I could say they've never been taught the scripture. Let me put it in a different way. They've never been taught the fear of the Lord. You see, and I've used this illustration many times, but so imagine there's this great, powerful, and severe king, and he loves his bride more than his whole kingdom. And you're a steward, and he leaves you in charge of her as he goes on a long journey. He's given you very specific rules to follow. Everything from her food, her diet, her dress, everything. But when he leaves, after a while, you notice the people lose interest in her because she's old-fashioned. She's kind of plain in a worldly sense. And so you take off that beautiful white garment and you dress her like a whore. You paint her face And you parade her in front of carnal men, hoping that that's going to attract them back to the king. When that king comes back, he's going to kill you. That's why you should not fall into pragmatism. You and I are stewards. We are stewards. That's all we are. We're stewards. We don't make rules. Remember what he told Moses? You be careful to do everything that was shown you in the mountain. If Moses had made one of those instruments for the tabernacle in a way that seemed right in his own eyes, he would have been dead. Well, I can tell you this, the bride of Christ is of much more worth to God than a tabernacle. Pragmatism is deadly, not only for the people, but for the minister who promotes it. 
It doesn't work. And another thing that you need to see, the more you trust in the arm of the flesh, the less you're going to see the arm of God. You Listen to me. You need to cut yourself off. What was Israel's greatest need? To cut itself off from the help of Egypt, the help of Assyria, the help of Babylon. Cut themselves off entirely and do what? Look to their God. And you need to look in your life. Where are you depending upon the flesh? Listen, one of the most powerful things that's in all of the scripture is that he is the God who sees. He reigns. He delights in those who refuse to lean upon that broken staff that's Egypt and rely upon their God. So let me say this for many of you who are so delighted when I say word, word, word. Don't forget also prayer, prayer, prayer. Because if there's one thing that your flesh hates more than the word of God, it's getting on its knees. So those things, yes. Thank you. Like looking at a group of elders and pastors who should, I trust, understand their role and responsibility uh, in their churches to send out missionaries. If you were to personally disciple a group of missionaries in preparation to go to the field? What would you prioritize in your preparation and what would be the things that you would prepare them to face? Priority, holiness. Holiness. I know a lot of very smart men that are ungodly. A holy man. Holiness, prayer, prayer. A man who utterly, who sees himself as utterly zero, who can contribute to the work of Christ only his sin and needs Christ. Prayer, scripture, a man who has nothing to say. He can only repeat what God has said. Because he himself has nothing to offer. So that would be the first thing. Another thing, in the study of Scripture, and you young men, please, please really listen to me on this. It seems like a lot of times in theological training that the guys who are really interested in Greek and Hebrew and systematic theology, they're kind of all going the professor route. Oh, you like Greek and Hebrew, so you're going to be a language professor or you're going to be a systematic theologian. And it seems like the guys who are more given to ministry think, well, you know, I'm going into ministry. I, I don't need this as much. No, you need it more. I mean, because these guys don't even have a ministry if all they're doing is teaching other academics. Their, their job is to teach men who are going to go out and preach the gospel to, to sometimes very, very simple people. So, so you, need, you need the following. You need the languages. You need hermeneutics. You need systematic theology to learn to think in a, in a non-contradictory manner. And guess what else? One of the greatest needs on the mission field that no one seems to be talking about is church history. 
You say, well, why is that important? First of all, it's important because it's a principle of hermeneutics. That you're always to do your theology in the context of the church, in the context of 2,000 years of men and women who have believed the Word of God. Because when you come to a conclusion, no matter how good you are in Greek and Hebrew, you need to compare yourself to somebody. And if everybody's in agreement and they all disagree with you, you're probably wrong. <laughs> but here's another thing. I rarely see people teaching church history to the Korowai tribe in Indonesia. But see, here's what you need to understand. Christianity's just been introduced to them. So those believers are being constantly told what? You're a part of a modern sect. You've departed from the religion of history, our religion. And that's why we need to teach church history so that we go, no, from Adam. There is a scarlet thread. They need church history so that they know that they're not some disconnected little sect that just popped up in the last few years. Church history. So you need to study. Another thing, you do need to know the culture. But, but here's something I want to say that is so important. Cultures are varied. You can walk into taboos. You can do things that are wrong unnecessarily. So you need to study culture. But there's something far more important than studying culture, and that is bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because against such things, there is no law. And, and the thing about it is, um, for example, I was teaching one time on marriage. I was supposed to teach like, I don't know, 18 times. And I got to like lesson 13, and we still hadn't talked about marriage. And they said, you know, you haven't talked about marriage. I said, what have I talked about? They said, you've spent the whole time talking about the fruit of the Spirit. I said, exactly. If I teach a man all the principles of marriage, but he's, he's not walking and bearing the fruit of the Spirit, it won't matter. But if I have a man who's bearing the fruit of the Spirit, his wife's going to be happy even if he doesn't know any principles. <laughs> now, it's good to know both, right? It's good to know both. But what we, this goes back to... Do you realize that the, the great missionaries of the past didn't use all this language we use today and all this baggage and all this terminology? Because they just use biblical terminology. Well, that culture is going to be different than you. Well, then I suppose I need to be loving and patient. Do you see? So it, it's this idea of, of wanting to, to being Christ-like, to bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And then something I always warn church planners. So I get these church planners, and they're all in a room, and I'm, all gonna, I'm gonna ask them all a question. Why are you planning a church? And I love it, because I nail them every time. <laughs> and they'll go, well, you know, I'm gonna plan a church, and then from that church, I hope to plan other churches. And I go, that is so wrong. You plant a church because you love those people. Not so that you can use them to fulfill some church planting vision. Because those people, they're not going to promote your church planting vision. They're going to slow you down. And that's why I've heard some missionary groups say that the church is actually one of the greatest hindrances to the Great Commission. You see, you're going to have a bunch of broken people. And while you're wanting to reach, you know, the next 
uh, city-state or the next uh, over that mountain, you're going to have a guy who keeps committing the same sin and ruining his life, and you have to stay up all night with him. I said this in a sermon one time, and Dr. MacArthur walked up to me after the sermon, and he goes, you know, you're right. Plant a church because you love the people. But let me add one thing, because you want to feed them. So don't, don't think about your vision. Think about the people. But here's the thing. If you plant a church and love and feed the people, in time, other churches will be planted. But don't ever use God's people even for, for your own vision, even when it's noble. That, that's very, very important. Tremendous. Thank you. Well, Heart Cry has demonstrated a, an abiding commitment to invest and stand with and support national pastors. Um, we want to hear from you, just from your perspective of ministry of Heart Cry. What do you see God doing in the lives of the men that you're working with? What encourages you? Maybe give us a couple examples. Yeah. Well, first of all, that you have to realize on the mission field, men are men. So you're going to confront the same problems no matter where you are. Um, But there are some wonderful things happening all over the world. Christ does not lose. Christ does not lose. As a matter of fact, I never thought I would be living in such a time where I would be seeing the hand of Christ in such a way. And you say, the world's falling apart. No, the world's being judged. And it's being judged by Him. He's tearing down nations. He's lifting up nations. And no one can stop his hand or ask him, what are you doing? So, at HeartCry, we work with, in two different ways. The second way gets us in trouble sometimes, but we work in two different ways. First of all, we partner with uh, people. We, don't, we support missionaries, but we don't. And what I mean by that is, HeartCry can't support indigenous missionaries who live 10,000 miles away and hold them accountable. That's impossible. What we do is we build relationships with biblical churches and biblical elders that are training men, sending them out and holding them accountable um, of the same theology. You know, when I'm over there in uh, Zambia with Conrad and Bayway, and I'm hearing all the stuff they're putting their men through, sometimes I told Conrad one time, I go, man, I don't think you guys would let me be a missionary here. You know, so we partner with mature men, mature churches, and they're training those men, sending them out, holding them accountable, and pulling them off the field. If, if they do not continue walking in a manner in which they should walk. But then we also, and, and we also do that with, like I've already mentioned, uh, some TMAI places, um, Leon, different churches, different missionaries that have come out of here and things like that. But then there's another group that we work with, and they get us in a lot of trouble. And it's this. One time I had a friend of mine who had visited certain countries, and he came back, he was so impressed. Then he went to this other area, and he goes, I was teaching the guys that you guys have started supporting, and they're just not where the other group was. And I said, you want to know why? They're in the same place that other group was 10 years ago. There are men, what I'm trying to say is there are men that have been called of God, that have planted churches in different places, and their theology 
It's not that it's wrong. It's just not mature. I'm not going to despise that. If it takes 10 years to move them to where they ought to be, then, then we'll do that. If you go into some of the tribal areas in, uh, in Papua, Indonesia, they don't even have a language, a written language, a, a Bible in a written language. Now, here's, what, here's something I, w- I want to show you. I want to talk for just a moment about, I don't know what I should call it, if it's partiality, if it's um, some form of racism, I don't know what it is. Here's one of the biggest mistakes in missions. It, 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 it's horrible because it's a denial that every man is made in the image of God. So I see missionaries go into a primitive tribe and they basically give them cookies. And the idea is give them cookies for the rest of their life because all they'll ever be able to do is eat, is eat cookies. Well, I'm, my, I'm Croatian. And my father's European, English, my mother, full Croatian. I always tell people, I go, you know, all of us in the West, in Europe, prior to the gospel entering in, we were all running around naked, painting ourselves blue and hitting each other with clubs in the head. <laughs> what, what changed? What changed our culture? It was Christianity. And so when I go into a tribe, or, or one of our guys going to the tribe that's the most primitive I'm sitting there going, yeah, but one day, there's a John Owen in here somewhere. There's a Charles Spurgeon in here somewhere. You see, the gospel, it's the gospel that changes culture. If you're sitting here right now and you are a pagan and you're atheistic, but you admire Bach, you owe part of that to Jesus Christ. What, what I'm trying to tell you is when we go out into the world, you know, I, I know some groups that put the cart before the horse. They go, we got to change culture. No, you don't change culture. You preach the gospel and you teach men the gospel. And eventually what happens? Everything begins to change. There are many scholars who believe that all the economic prosperity of the West in the last 400 and some years is due to the theology of Calvin. So when we go out into this world, I'm looking at these people who maybe 15 years ago were eating one another. But now they're loving their wives. And one day they will be great expositors. Do you see that? And so don't ever look at a people and think, we'll give them cookies and this is all, this is all they ever need. No, it's not. No, it's not. All right, we're going to ask one last question. It's easy to stand and critique and even criticize what's happening in missions around the world. You're looking at a room full of pastors. Yeah. Why don't you speak to them? What is our duty? What is our responsibility to lead the missions effort in and through our churches? If you have converted people in your church, they are good people. If they're not good people, they're not converted. They love the Lord. God's done a work in them. But you see, guys like me, Mark, others, we do missions 
So I get up in the morning, I'm thinking about missions. I go to work, I'm dealing with missionaries. I go to bed, I'm thinking about missions and missionaries. Now, I know people that are Christians, a welder, a mechanic, a doctor. He doesn't think like me, even though he's far more spiritual than me. What is my point? The daily activities and the daily grind and the daily needs of even good Christians many times force out of their memory and their mind the Great Commission. In the same way that as a pastor, you are required to put the Word of God before these people a few times a week. You're also to put before them His greatest commission. And as pastors, I would encourage, even as pastors... Some of you pray more than I do. You love the Lord more than I do. You're godlier than I am. But the thing about it is you're thinking about your flock all the time, and you rightly should be. But you need to have something that's telling you constantly, promote the Great Commission. Promote the Great Commission. Make it known. Bring in missionaries. Not missionaries necessarily with slideshows, but ones that preach. (laughs) Bring in missionaries. Talk about missions. Every year, you know, one of the, you know, we have all the, these, these youth mission trips that really I don't recommend at all. But what I do recommend is that pastor theologians, godly elders, go to the mission field once or twice a, a year sent by their church to exposit Scripture, to exposit Scripture and come back and tell people. It is our, you know, you know, right, that you've got godly people in your church, but they work 16 hours a day and they barely have time to think. And if they get in 20 minutes of Bible study, it's a great thing for them. And so, you know, you study for them. Well, you need to promote missions before them in the same way. I I had, there was, when I went to Peru, there was a group of, like I said, they were uh, independent Baptist fundamental, independent Baptist missionaries. And they were so loving to me. They were so kind to me. And, and they taught me many things. One of them, Carlton Allen, he had to go back to the States. And when he did, he pastored a small church in Georgia, I'd say somewhere around less than 100 people. And They gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions, and there was no doctor or lawyer or anybody in their church. But when you you walked down any hallway in that church, it was like every 10 feet there were pictures of missionaries. Every time he got up in the pulpit, folks, we're, we're, we're eating well here today, aren't we? There are people who have no Bible. I mean, he was just... His whole, even though he was a a wonderful, beautiful, caring pastor, he just put missions in front of his people all the time. And that's that's what we need to do. All right. Well, we've heard the challenge. Thank you, Paul. Let me commit us to the Lord as we take up the task and responsibility assigned to us. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we have been aided this afternoon to better understand what the realities are that exist on the field, what the realities are of the issues that the people in our churches that we send out will face, 
we've been reminded of what the responsibility is uh, on our part to take the matter of missions seriously as pastors and elders to equip and prepare our people to be the kind of people who are characterized by the fruit of the Spirit and thus people of impact, to equip and train our people and make sure that they are prepared to be people of the Word who are able to rightly divide it and articulate it and bring the Word to bear. Lord, that it might have its intended effect, empowered by your Spirit to bring conversion, repentance, and sanctification. And Lord, we know that's necessary then for other disciples to be one to Christ and to be brought into the context of your church. And so, Lord, uh, we pray that you would help us as we press into our responsibility in our local churches. We also want to give thanks. We thank you for the agreement that's in this room towards this common charge. We thank you for the opportunities that exist among us to partner and to support those who are characterized in the way that Paul has described what a missionary should do and what a missionary should be. And so we want to be found faithful. We want to live in such a way that we look at every resource that we can contribute to see this work advanced. And we pray a special blessing on Paul himself. We thank you for his faithfulness, his example, his courage, and his humility that speaks to us as men and reminds us of who we are to be and how we are to go about our work as well. And so we give thanks for our time together this afternoon. We pray a blessing on these men. Christ's name. Amen.